we have been uh, discussing the tenant systems that were posited originally from the teachings of the Buddha and then uh, deriving more specifically from the Indian commentaries to them. And the uh, Tibetans, when they brought uh, this material into uh, Tibet, then I'm not quite sure who started the tradition, but it uh, seems to be prominent at least within uh, Galupa tradition, at least among some of the Galupa teachers, uh, that uh, they are studied in a progressive order. So this is the way that uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, approaches this material. And uh, my own teacher, who is one of His Holiness's teachers, Sirkum Rinpoche, also presented them. So that's why I'm presenting them this way. And I find it uh, extremely helpful to work with this material in this way, which I hope that you will also find helpful. We have covered the Vaibhashika and Sautrantika and Chittamatra schools. And today we're up to Madhyamaka. Within uh, Madhyamaka, we have a classification, which is uh, primarily emphasized among the Tibetans, uh, of uh, Svatantrika Prasa uh, Madhyamaka and Prasangika Madhyamaka. Uh, this uh, classification is uh, used within the Galupa tradition, Tsongkhapa, uh, other traditions earlier than this and uh, after this as well have uh, made uh, further types of uh, divisions of Madhyamaka. We mentioned before Maha Madhyamaka and so on. So we don't need to go into how everyone has divided <laughs> Madhyamaka differently. And within uh, Svatantrika, again, within the Gluk tradition, I don't know how widespread it is, there's the uh, division of uh, Yogacara Svatantrika and uh, Sautrantika Svatantrika. And each of these has a true aspectarian and a false aspectarian interpretation. And you recall that the difference between these two concerns whether or not we actually uh, perceive non-conceptually uh, what we call common sense, ordinary so-called worldly objects. Common sense just means that uh, they're ordinary, what anybody would uh, say, yep. understand. So uh, true aspectarian would say that uh, I don't just see colored shapes, I actually see a hand, for example. Whereas the false aspectarian says that uh, colored shapes are all that you uh, perceive. Uh, a hand is a conceptual construct. It's called a mental synthesis of conceptually synthesizing a common sense object from the information that you would have from all the senses and uh, that uh, and of the object extending over time. And both positions do make a lot of sense. Both, tradition, both uh, positions can be misunderstood, that uh, the true aspectarian is asserting some absolute existence of things, and the 
a false aspectarian as uh, uh, asserting a nihilist position that nothing actually really exists, it's just conceptual, and uh, both sides uh, point out, sometimes rather strongly, the dangers that you could uh, have if you misunderstand each other's position. The uh, true aspectarian view is what uh, Tsongkhapa emphasizes, and we have this uh, emphasized in the Gluck tradition after that. And we saw that Tsongkhapa emphasizes this and chooses to emphasize this because of uh, uh, the fact that it uh, uh, is a stronger support for ethical uh, discipline, that uh, it is uh, easier to understand cause and effect in terms of our behavior if we understand that uh, there is our actual common sense objects that uh, we perceive, other per persons and so on, that uh, are affected by our behavior. Uh, both Yogacara and Sautrantika Svatantrika assert a person's coarse and subtle selflessness, the same as we had in Sautrantika and Chittamatra. So we don't have to repeat that. And neither of them assert Alaya Vijnana, foundation consciousness. In this, I believe Tsunkapa was unique. I think the other traditions say that they do accept Alaya Vijnana. The uh, Yogacara division of Svatantrika asserts the coarse selflessness of phenomenon, the same as in Chittamatra. Sautrantika division does not assert that. That's the difference between the two. So the Yogacharas then uh, of Svatantrika are uh, agreeing with the Chittamatra that uh, there are no ex externally established phenomenon, that uh, we can only assert, we can only establish that uh, the uh, existence of any dependent phenomenon, a non-static changing phenomenon, in terms of uh, uh, when we actually perceive them non-conceptually, that the mental hologram and consciousness and mental factors and imputations, etc., all these sort of things are all arising together from one karmic seed, not from separate karmic seeds. Now, what's interesting, at least I find it interesting historically, is that uh, the Sautrantika, Svatantrika position is uh, deriving from uh, Baba Viveka. Baba Viveka was an Indian master who uh, gave his own interpretation of Nagarjuna's work, and then Buddhapalata refuted him, and Tsongkhapa got his... Uh, uh, you know, was in a vision from Manjushri, was, was told that uh, if you really study Bodhipalata, you'll get a correct understanding. So uh, Tsongkhapa, the Galupas, emphasized this Sautrantika, <coughs> Svatantrika position. The one that comes from... From... Uh, Svatantrika or Prasangika? The Sautrantika, Svatantrika. In understanding Svatantrika, Tsongkhapa puts the greatest emphasis on the Sautrantika Svatantrika position because that's deriving in this uh, uh, debate that occurred over time between uh, Buddha, uh, between Baba Viveka and then later the refutation by Buddha Palata. On the other hand, 
The Yogacara Svatantrika position was the position that you had uh, that was asserted in the texts of uh, uh, Kamalashila, uh, first Shantarakshita and Kamalashila, the uh, Indian masters who uh, came to uh, Tibet originally, you know, first, and uh, from whose uh, teachings, then they invited uh, Guru Rinpoche, and from their teachings derived these earlier traditions in uh, Tibet, Nyingma, and then uh, the emphasis after that we get in Sakya and in uh, Kagyu. So what is uh, interesting is that uh, the, there is a tendency in the understanding of Madhyamaka to uh, buy these other schools to emphasize this uh, whole uh, Chittamatra flavor understanding, which is what uh, Tsongkhapa was objecting to, and he went back to the earlier master, Indian masters. Okay, so the oh, good. <laughs> I hope that's not too complicated, but uh, it explains a lot historically why we find this uh, emphasis on uh, uh, you know this flavor of no external phenomenon or false aspectarian, this sort of thing in the earlier uh, uh, asserted by the earlier masters that uh, Tsongkhapa uh, found problematic that uh, it could be misunderstood. So he went back to the earlier masters. That's because our topic is the uniqueness of Tsongkhapa's view. So we need to explain a little bit uh, uh, how it came about and why it came about. Okay. Now, uh, so Sautrantika, Svatantrika, uh, doesn't assert this coarse selflessness of phenomenon, only a subtle one. And that subtle one is accepted by both Yogacara and Sautrantika uh, divisions. Sautrantika Svatantika only follow, uh, follows both subtle and coarse? Of, no, uh, the Yogacara has both coarse and subtle because it says uh, no external phenomenon. And the Sautrantika says there's only a subtle one. Mm -hmm. And it, the subtle one that they assert is in common with the... Uh, both assert the same subtle one and only Yogacara asserts a, a coarse one, which is the same as the Chittimantras. So the emphasis... <laughs> that Tsongkhapa makes is on this subtle one. So what is the, the subtle selflessness of all phenomenon, which includes persons? And we have to go back to our old friend, defining character, individual, defining characteristic marks, the barcode. And if we uh, refer to it as a barcode, because that's a little bit easier to uh, work with, uh, if you recall, Chittamatra, Chittamatra differentiated uh, that uh, um, two things that uh, the barcode defining characteristic could establish. One was to establish that it was a validly knowable thing, you know, encapsulated in plastic. There it is. And, you know, there's nothing other than that, than what it is, that individual thing. And the other thing that it established, that barcode, was that it... Uh, fit into or belonged into an appropriate uh, set of categories and uh, appropriate set of words, you know, because af after all, things can be called by words in different languages. So it uh, fits into categories and it fits into words. And uh, in conceptual cognition, when hologram of the object appears, 
then the, that uh, barcode can establish it as a thing, but uh, doesn't, ha a doesn't have the power at all to uh, make it fit into the category or word. That was the Chittimatra position. <laughs> so that's why it made the difference between these two abilities. Now, Svatantrika doesn't make, doesn't differentiate those uh, two abilities. It puts it all together into one ability of the uh, characteristic mark, one ability of the, of the barcode. Do both. So that defining characteristic, that barcode, what we are analyzing is, does it have the power to be able to uh, uh, establish something as a validly knowable, findable thing? And does it have the power to be able to uh, establish it as belonging to a category and being a basis for a word? Now, if it were able to, if that characteristic were able to establish uh, something as existing, as a thing, for example, by its own power alone, that's called truly established existence, or true existence. You recall Sautrantika defined truly established existence as the ability to produce an effect. Chittamatra and higher, uh, we define it differently. They define it differently. So for Chittamatra, dependent phenomenon, you know, things that change all the time, non-static phenomenon, do have truly established existence because uh, it's only that barcode itself, the defining characteristic, that establishes it as uh, a thing. And Madhyamaka comes along, and this is in common with all branches of Madhyamaka, says there's no such thing as truly established existence. Nothing has truly established existence, which means that the defining characteristic of anything by itself alone does not have the power to establish it as a thing. Now, <laughs> we uh, have to uh, uh, work with the other um, part of the uh, definition that we had of uh, something, existence established by an individual defining characteristic mark. It's another term. Remember, it was, remember, it was defined, if I can remember it, uh, it was defined as uh, being established by the individual mark, by the barcode, and not merely by mental labeling. So not merely by, by mental labeling had two possibilities, either not by, it, by mental labeling at all, it's, that's truly established existence, or in conjunction with mental labeling. So Svatantrika says they refute both sides. They say it can't be, you can't establish the uh, existence of anything just by the defining characteristic alone. That would be the absolutist position, you know, extreme, which is the Chittimatra position. And also you can't establish the existence uh, of something merely in terms of mental labeling. That's what Prasangika will say. So it refutes Prasangika as well, doesn't accept that, and accuses it of uh, being the nihilist position. So it says we can only establish the existence of something, you know, in terms of the defining characteristic mark in conjunction with mental labeling. 
So it is by the power of the defining characteristic mark as well as the category, you know, mental labeling with the category and designation with words together. Uh, you know, the justification for this was done in, in terms of political issue. If uh, things were established by mental labeling alone, as what they were, then, for instance, uh, a king could be labeled on anybody. A, uh, a peasant or anybody could be labeled a king, and that would make them a king. So Svetantrika, in order to get royal patronage, etc., said there has to be something on the side of the person that allows them to be properly, appropriately labeled as a king. So this is the way that it was uh, argued. So it's like saying that there has to be something findable inside me that makes me me and not you. And we have that type of uh, idea in terms of, for instance, uh, uh, the genome you know, of each individual person. The scientific uh, thing says that as well. So, the subtle selflessness of the uh, uh, all phenomenon then is uh, that uh, it's impossible to establish the existence of anything by the power of the individual defining characteristic and not merely by mental labeling. So although it's uh, defined in such a way that is really quite difficult to uh, understand and work with, if we analyze each of the parts, we can uh, understand what it is uh, refuting. So it's saying it's impossible to establish the existence of something by only the, the, the characteristic mark or by merely mental labeling. That's what it's saying, if you put it into uh, easier to understand language. So how do we actually work with this? What does this mean? So I filled in a lot. So <laughs> consider the example of the red bump on our face. Right? That's what we were talking about before. So, although the red bump has on its own side the defining characteristic mark that by convention could be the defining characteristic mark of a thing and also the defining characteristic mark of a pimple and something ugly or a disaster, right? Emphasis here is on could be. It could be labeled as any of these. It doesn't establish it as being any of these by its own power alone, independently of somebody actually mentally labeling them with these categories or designating it with those words. So because the characteristic mark doesn't have the power by itself, it's our choice what we mentally label it with, what we call it. This is the important point. This is the implication of it. It's our choice. So if we simply don't label it ourselves, this red bump, with the categories ugly, pimple, and disaster, we won't have a problem with it. We can label it simply as a red bump on our face and deal with it by putting some cream on it or something if we would like to do that. And we'll be able to do that without becoming upset. 
It's just a red bump, and I put some, something on it. I'm not calling it a disaster and an ugly pimple, and nobody's going to like me, and so on. Now, others might label it as an ugly pimple and a disaster because it has that characteristic mark that by convention could be called that. But, you know, it's because this person, the person that uh, says, oh, you have an ugly pimple on your face, uh, that that person has uh, a problem with red bumps on their face. They probably had a problem themselves with somebody that they, that they were in love with, with these red bumps. And they had a problem with it. And they, you know, were in the habit of putting it into the category of ugly pimple and disaster and, you know, horrible, like that. So it's their problem. I don't have to think like that. And just because they think like that, that doesn't have the power. In other words, mental labeling alone doesn't have the power to make it into a disaster. So you see like this, uh, this insight of Svetantrika is uh, very, very helpful. You know, I say uh, something and uh, uh, you think that it was an insult. Well, you know, you're paranoid. I don't have to be paranoid. I'm not paranoid. I didn't mean that. That is an insult. So I understand that uh, it's basically your problem. And just because you're paranoid and you think that anything that anybody says to you is an insult, that doesn't establish it as an insult. I wasn't insulting you. Right? Sure, I can understand that, you know, I can see how you might have <laughs> taken it as an insult. It has a characteristic mark that could be considered that, but it doesn't have to be like that. And it only arose dependently as fitting into your category because of your psychological problems. So although the way that, uh, you know, the Svetantrika position is, uh, uh, it, the, the way in which it's formulated is rather complicated and not so easy to uh, understand. Initially, nevertheless, when we see the application of it, we see that actually this is brilliant and it's very, very helpful. It's not something stupid that, you know, the Pasanga could say, well, you stupid people think that. You know, it's wrong. You should never think like that about these tenant systems. Okay, now the bridge to Prasangika. Uh, remember, Svatantrika asserts existence established by something's defining characteristic mark in conjunction with mental labeling. Because of that, it do, in fact does not refute self-established existence. Remember, self-established existence, uh, many translators call that inherent existence. Uh, from the point of view of Prasangika, right? Not from the point of view of Svatantrika itself. No, Svatantrika asserts self-established existence. Exist. They assert inherent existence. Mm. Remember what uh, self-established existence was, that there's a mental label, there is the basis for labeling, and that the uh, mental, you know, when the mental label is labeled on the basis, it refers to something. So, um, red bump, you know, on, a, uh, let's get a good example. Uh, 
pimple labeled on a red bump, category pimple with all its associations, well, what does it refer to? It refers to what by convention people would call a pimple. So that's the referent object. Self-established existence would be that there is something behind it holding it up. Итак, um, Findable. And that's called a referent thing. It is behind the referent object or right, behind, behind the, the referent object. Okay, let's imagine. Here's a red bump. And I am uh, conceptualizing about it. I saw it, and now I'm, now I'm thinking about it. This is conceptual thought after I've seen it. Okay, first there's a category. I'm, you know, I'm looking at it through the category of ugly pimple. And there's a mental hologram appearing of a, uh, a red bump. And I'm labeling, you know, I'm pasting onto that uh, hologram the category ugly pimple. Okay, so the referent object is a pimple. That's by convention, you know, it's a pimple. It's referring to something. Now, what is it on the side of the object, this red bump on my face, that allowed for the correct labeling of it as a pimple? There's a, define, a findable defining characteristic mark, barcode. That barcode on the side of the actual red bump on my face, I looked at from another point of view, would be a self-establishing nature. And that would make the, that there is a referent thing there on my face, an actual pimple. So the referent thing would be an actual pimple on my face, not just a red bump. What a findable pimple, that there's something on the side of this red bump that actually makes it a pimple, either by itself or in conjunction with mental labeling. Uh, that there's something findable on the side of this that's the red bump. Thing, the, the reference that thing. Makes it a, that makes it a reference thing. Follow? So, uh, well... Uh, you always add more and more, so I lose, you know. Maybe you say sentence by sentence, and then it will be easier to translate, because I lose, you know. Right. I mean, this is very difficult stuff, so I, being a translator myself, I know how difficult it is to translate it. So, there's a red bump on the face. I said pimple. Right. There's a red bump. I'm calling it a pimple. Uh, is there something on the side of this red bump that establishes it as a pimple, either by itself or in conjunction with me calling it a pimple? Svetantrika says, yes, there's the findable defining characteristic mark. So for them, it's actually, it has the possibility to be validly called a pimple. And that would establish it as a pimple. As a... <laughs> it's established by its defining characteristic mark. Well, no. It, it, 
that is equivalent to it being to having, having inherent existence, having self-established existence. A pimple would not merely be the referent object of the mental label, but in that process of mental labeling, the red bump on my face is actually a referent thing. It actually is a pimple. It's established as a pimple. That makes it a referent thing. It's holding up my mental label of it as a pimple. So you can think of it, remember we use this image of a uh, wooden diagonal piece, you know, piece of wood that's holding up uh, a piece of scenery in a theater. So mental labeling, it's that piece of scenery, although it's not so concrete. That's a reference object. You know, it refers to something. It means something. You know, it's not just nothing. But that defining characteristic, which now becomes a self-establishing nature on the side of what's on my face, that's holding it up. That's holding up this referent object. You know, the literal translation of the Tibetan word is a basis that, is, that you're aimed at, migden, in uh, Tibetan. Uh, the basis that makes it that you can that's aim holding at, it up that it is a basis at which you are aimed in other words it, that is what I'm calling the uh, um, the prop that's the, that's holding it up since there are people here who understand Tibetan the referent object is a uh, um, and the referent thing is Daktun. Right. So these are two different terms in uh, Tibetan. But there's also Mikden, right? And That's the other one is Mikden. Mikden ah. is like the doctrine. Right. You know, there are all these technical terms in Tibetan. And uh, you really have to be very, very precise in understanding what they are referring to. Otherwise, uh, it'll, everything gets confused. So, Svatantrika is still asserting self-established existence. There's still something findable on the side of the object that establishes its existence. Okay? But they are saying, but it is in conjunction with mental labeling. It doesn't mm -hmm. do it by itself. Okay? So, Prasangika. Uh, Prasangika accepts the core selflessness of persons asserted by the other tenant systems. You know, it accepts that the uh, self is not a uh, uh, static, heartless, independently existing thing, Atman. It accepts that, but it doesn't count it as one of the levels of selflessness as a of a person. Because, <laughs> how can I say this simply? Because, In the other systems, non-prasangika systems, to attain liberation, you only had to understand the selflessness of persons, coarse and subtle. Although Vaibhashka only had coarse, but uh, you only had to understand that. In order to, under, in, in order to attain enlightenment, you had to understand the selflessness of all phenomenon, which also applied to persons. Tsongkhapa is unique in asserting that you need the same realization, the same understanding uh, of voidness, of selflessness, 
to attain either liberation or enlightenment. He's unique in that, unique in asserting that Prasangika asserts that. Remember, Tsongkhaba said Prasangika makes actual assertions, not just refuting everybody, everything. Because you need the, uh, because the object to be refuted by voidness has to be the same for persons and all phenomenon in order for that realization to enable you to attain both liberation and enlightenment, that object of refutation has to apply to everything. So, the object for refutation, of course, selflessness of persons, according to the non-prasangikas, was something that was static, partless, and could exist independently. Well, there are things that are static. Prasangika accepts that as well. Categories, voidness, that's static. There's nothing partless, and there's nothing that it can exist independently, but there are static phenomena. Therefore, being static, partless, and independently existing doesn't apply to all phenomena. Because of that, you can't actually uh, include the refutation of that, referring to persons, as something which is shared in common for attaining both liberation and enlightenment. So that's why Prasangika doesn't include that coarse selflessness of persons as uh, uh, one of the selflessnesses of persons that you have to get rid of. That doesn't mean that you don't have to get rid of that. It's just not counted. You know, I always wondered, you know, because you hear it said, you know, explain that Prasangika does not accept that coarse selflessness of uh, persons that the others accept. That doesn't mean that they believe that the self is an Atman. Of course they refute that, but they don't call it the selflessness of persons because it also has to apply to all phenomena. So for Prasangika, the coarse selflessness of uh, persons is what the other schools call the subtle one, that there's no such thing as a self-sufficiently knowable person because that applies to all phenomena. Nothing is self-sufficiently knowable. Everything is an imputation on a basis. Remember, I mean, I emphasized this at the very beginning, first lecture, that imputation is a very different type of phenomenon than a mental, la mental label or designation, mental label with categories or designation with words. Very different, despite the fact that in Tibetan, the same word is used for all three. That's where the misunderstanding comes from. Nobody has to impute an imputation. It's a fact. So if you say that the self is imputed on the aggregates, that gives the false impression that somebody has to actually impute it. And it's a choice whether you impute it or not. That's but wrong. It is simply an imputation. It's like a fact. Although fact is not exactly precise, but that's uh, the only word I can think of. And it becomes much more understandable if we think in terms of the relation of a whole and parts, which is what applies to all phenomenon. A whole is an imputation on the parts. 
Nobody has to impute it. There is such a thing as a whole, and there is such a thing as parts. What is the relation between a whole and its parts? That is what is called imputation and a basis for imputation. We can see a whole object. We can see parts. It's not a conceptual process, according to the true aspectarians. Whole would be like a common sense object, not just the parts, like the uh, colored shapes that you see. Whereas mentally labeling it with a, uh, putting it into a category, designating it with a word, that's optional. Somebody has to actually do that. Dog doesn't do that. Well, maybe the dog does for categories, but, uh, uh, but the dog doesn't do it with words. So everything is imputedly knowable. Nothing is self-sufficiently knowable. To know something, you have to uh, uh, perceive the parts as well, not just the whole, the whole and the parts simultaneously. That's imputedly knowable. So that refers to both persons and to all phenomenon. So since it's in common to both, it's called, like Prasanga is the core selflessness of persons. Yeah. Because you have to understand it to attain either liberation or enlightenment. And the subtle selflessness of persons and all phenomenon is that uh, nothing has, it's impossible to establish something, the existence of something by a self-establishing nature. So it uh, refutes inherent existence, inherently established existence. There's no, no referent thing, you know, that object that you were perceiving does not function as a referent thing that holds up the referent object of calling it a pimple or calling it anything, or even conceptualizing that it's a validly knowable thing. Everything is validly knowable, right? I mean, Buddha's omniscient, so he knows everything. So <laughs> everything is validly knowable, and we fit everything into the category, validly knowable phenomenon. So what's a validly knowable phenomenon? It's what the category refers to. What's the basis for labeling? All the parts of anything and the causes and conditions and all of that stuff. There's nothing on the side of that object that is encasing it in plastic so that then you can call it a validly knowable thing and it'll fit into the category. That would be a self-establishing nature that would generate that plastic. That's rangshin in Tibetan. And it would also be equivalent to a defining characteristic mark, that's tsenyi in uh, Tibetan, that also in conjunction with mental labeling fitted into the category. That was the Svatantrika position. So it's just dependently arising everything, you know, parts, causes, conditions, changing all the time, Nothing exists as a still photograph. But how do we understand anything? How do we speak about anything? We have conceptual cognition. That's like taking a still photograph. And in that still photograph, we have categories and we have words we can apply. Do they refer to something? Sure, they refer to something. All right? that's, conve that's conventional reality. Conventionally true phenomenon or conventional truth. But 
things don't exist as a still photograph. If it were still photograph, that would be referent things holding up our concept, our, you know, what the concept refers to. Dependently arising from parts and causes and conditions and so on, it doesn't stop for a moment, for, you know, like, we, like it appears in our snapshot, our conceptual snapshot. It's only our conceptual snapshot, however, that allows us to understand anything and to call it something. Right? So I make the snapshot of the red, of you know my face, and uh, yeah, I make a big thing, you know, in the snapshot. Well, yeah, I can point. There's a red bump, and it's a pimple, and all of that. But it's not established from the side of the object, which doesn't mean that there's nothing there. So. <laughs> that is the subtle selflessness of all phenomena, including persons. There's no way of establishing something existing by the power of some self-establishing nature on the side of the object. There's no referent thing encapsulated in plastic sitting there with some self-establishing nature, something that is, that is you know, projecting plastic around it so that it fits into my category of thing, knowable thing. And that's equivalent to saying there's no, that although there's a defining characteristic, otherwise you can't distinguish one thing from another, even the defining characteristic is merely established by convention, by mental labeling. Remember, we mentioned that, you know, where <laughs> a bunch of cave people got together and made some grunting sound and said, they decided, this is what, you know, is a word for love, and this is one for liking. They, they made up definitions. People, that's convention. You make up definitions, you put it in a dictionary. That's how you define things. And when we have sounds, which by themselves don't have any meaning, and a group of people get together and decide that it has a meaning, and then now it's, it, they make it into a word. <laughs> and you know, there's a whole bunch of things that look pretty similar, and so they, make, they say, well, that's a category, you know, and the, the word is on the category that applies to all these things. Let's say, you know, dinosaur or something. Well, they didn't live at the time of dinosaurs. Let's say mammoth or something like that. Uh, all these animals, so, so okay. We, uh, we make this sound, you know, that's what, you know, there's going to be a word, mammoth, and all these animals that look alike, we're going to, you know, put them into a category. They're all mammoth. So let's go out and hunt mammoth. <laughs> they can communicate, right? And so they have decided what is the defining characteristic that distinguishes a mammoth from a deer. Well, it has husks and it has a long nose and so on. So they, they, they decide what are the defining characteristics. So do all these animals have these defining characteristics? Yes, otherwise you couldn't tell the difference between a mammoth and a deer. Do those defining characteristics have the power to establish it as a, a mammoth on its own side? How would you know? A deer doesn't think that it's a mammoth. <laughs> but the deer can tell the difference between a mammoth and another deer. I think the best example for understanding this is if you take a series of photographs, put them on the table, 
of yourself from the time of you being, you know, an infant all the way up until now. You know, a photograph taken uh, every couple years. How do you know that they're all me? Is there something findable in each of these photographs that make it me? I don't look anything like I did when I was an infant. Is that somebody else? No. It's me. Where's the defining characteristic? Genetics. In the picture? Well, the, the, and even if you talk about it, if you, if you could have them, you know, all these uh, uh, iterations of me there in front, you know, just that genome itself doesn't make, doesn't have the power to make it me. There is, what should we say? Everything changes, doesn't it? So all the, you know, the atoms of the DNA and all these sort of things are changing from moment to moment to moment. It's not the exact same atoms of uh, the genome in, uh, you know, when you were an infant and when it is now. Well, then you have to start to analyze, well, what is the pattern? And is the pattern a mental label? And, or is it an imputation? Or what is a pattern? And is there a pattern findable in any one moment? Pattern, even if you say that the pattern is an imputation on each moment, like a whole on parts, the pattern is not me, is it? Me is, is an imputation. But I'm, that, I'm not merely a, a, a genome, am I? You know, the basis for labeling is much more than just the genome. So the defining characteristic is just what allows you to distinguish one thing from another, but it isn't the basis of labeling that has the power to establish you. See, this is a complex issue. You have to actually, you know, it is a reasonable objection to say that uh, the findable defining characteristic is the genome. But, you know, then Prasangaga would come along and say, well, point to the genome. Is it this atom? Is it that atom? Is it, uh, you know, where is it? Genome is an imputation on all the parts and all the atoms. The whole is not the parts. I mean, now you get into Chandrakirti's whole thing, you know, with the chariot, you know, with the car. A car is not any of its parts. It's not, you know, put all the parts together on the floor. That's not the chariot and so on. So you can do the same analysis with the genome, right? So the imputation and the basis of imputation are never identical, never the same. It was the other schools that were saying, you know, the uh, defining characteristic mark of the imputation, specifically a person, is found in the basis, you know, mental consciousness or alia vinyana. Vasangika says, no, no, no. We can only establish a, a defining character, the existence of a defining characteristic in terms of what the mental label of a defining characteristic refers to. That is uh, dependently arising. But anyway, all of this is uh, abstract discussion, isn't it? And uh, for many of us, perhaps most of us, abstract thinking is not so easy.
thinking in terms of actual examples is much easier. <laughs> That's why I suggested the example of a series of photographs of us, you know, extending over our life. And how do we know that it is, uh, all of these are photographs of me? What establishes it? Well, all our relatives and the people who knew us since we were a baby tell us that, <laughs> yes, that's you when you were a baby. I mean, I don't remember it. I don't know what I looked like as a baby. So you have to then, you know, are they a valid source of information? You know, this gets into the whole discussion of how do you validly know anything? I can't find anything in each of these photos that makes it me because it's changed all the time. So is there the convention that, you know, you can take photograph of people, you know, throughout their life and, and that it's all me, you know, it's all that person. Yeah, that's, there's that convention. Is it contradicted by anyone that uh, can uh, see conventional uh, truth correctly? In other words, uh, people who actually knew me throughout my life, do they also agree that those all those pictures were me, that that was what I looked like? Or are there some that say, you know, no, I mean, actually you threw in a picture of uh, your brother or your sister. That wasn't you. And it has to be not contradicted by somebody who sees the deepest truth, who sees voidness. You know, you think just this very simple <laughs> example, you know, somebody that uh, you haven't seen in 10 years, and you say, oh, you haven't changed at all. Okay. So the main thing with prasangika, the application of it is to deconstruct everything into all the parts, causes and conditions, and you know the mental labels with which it can be uh, labeled, words which can be designated to it, to deconstruct all of that. So when we deconstruct, you know, that, uh, what we see in the mirror, you know, this red bump, and it has arisen, you know, dependently on all the atoms and so on. And the causes and conditions, you know, there's a face and it's oily and uh, maybe I'm still an, an adolescent or whatever. And, you know, it arises because of causes and conditions. And it being a pimple, well, that's only in terms of a of category pimple and a word pimple, which some group of people defined. And another group of people, maybe not everybody, but some, why should I believe them, considered it ugly and horrible. Maybe uh, it's a beauty mark. You know, tattoo of pimples on your face. <laughs> and even red is just a, uh, a category. You know, some, might, some people might call it orange. It depends on how you differentiate red from orange, defining characteristic. And what in the world is a bump? I mean, if, I, if you look under a microscope or something, a magnifying glass on the face, everything is a bump. Not smooth. <laughs> so it's only established as red and as a bump and as a pimple. Uh, and, you know, the parts and causes and conditions, you know, dependently on all this stuff, you know, on categories and parts and, and causes and so on. There's nothing concrete on, uh, on the side of what I'm seeing that makes it any of these. It's only in terms of, you know, uh, convention that it's any of these.
And we have these conventions so that we can understand, we can uh, uh, explain, we can talk, etc. So this is the, you know, the final conclusion here is that uh, with this understanding, we don't make a big deal out of anything. We don't make a big thing out of anything. We see this on our face, and if we want to cover it up, we cover it up. If we don't want to cover it up, we don't cover it up. It's no big deal. Something comes up in work, it's no big deal. You know, I don't have to label it a problem. I could label it challenge. I, it doesn't matter. Just deal with it. Dependent arising. It arose from causes and conditions, so now we put in new causes and conditions and it'll change. If I want to call it a challenge rather than a problem, it might make it easier for me to deal with it. So fine. I don't have to call it anything. That's optional. That's mental labeling. It's optional. And with that understanding, you just deal with life. Whatever arises, you just deal with it and don't make a big deal out of anything. This is the consequence of the prasangika view. And it is unbelievably helpful in dealing with life, especially when we have all sorts of uh, uh, complex things that we are doing. No, I'm not sure I, I translate, but in any ways, yeah. When we are unaware that nothing is a big deal, we either don't know it or we think the opposite. We make everything into a big deal. Remember, from unawareness comes disturbing emotions. So what comes from that? Stress. Stress comes from that. You know, me, I make myself into a, in, into a thing. I can't possibly deal with this. The, pro the, the situation, this is a horrible problem. It's a monster. It's awful. I can't deal with it. So you're stressed. No self-confidence, low self-esteem, I can't do it, it's too Ooh. much. And then destructive behavior comes from that. Drink coffee, 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 and uh, we complain, we, we, we do all sorts of crazy things. We don't sleep enough. You know, that's compulsive, that's karmic. Okay. What karma is talking about, right? We don't eat or we just stuff ourselves with chocolate and the result is suffering, problems. Very important to understand that, to recognize that, to see how do we get rid of it? Through correct prasangika understanding built up gradually that we don't make a big deal out of anything. Everything dependently arises. Then use discriminating awareness. What actually is, is realistic to do that I can do? What is unrealistic that I can do? And then you just do what is realistic. And you deal with life without stress. That's the key. That's what we're talking about with Buddhism. How to get rid of suffering. And the biggest suffering that most people have these days is stress. Prasangika is the perfect thing for that. So let's uh, stop for our morning session. And uh, after uh, lunch, we'll have uh, a session open for your questions. Thank you.